The Bible reading for this morning is John chapter 1, verses 1 through 18. I invite you to stand if you are able in order to hear this passage in a new way. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify concerning that light, so that through him all might believe. He himself was not the light. He came only as a witness to the light. The true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision, or a husband's will, but born of God." The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only son who came from the father, full of grace and truth. John testified concerning him. He cried out saying, this is the one I spoke about when I said, he who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. Out of his fullness, we have all received grace in place of grace already given. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God but the one and only Son, who is himself God and is in closest relationship with the Father, has made him known. You may be seated. Thanks, you. <clears throat> this morning I'm going to preach out of this passage for a bit. And um, then we're going to have a baptism. I want to give some of you a little bit of background on that because some of you do know those involved. Um, Shirley Dietrich has been part of our church for a long time. One of her infamies is that she was on the call committee that um, had me come to be the senior pastor of High Point 13 years ago in a couple of weeks. Um, <clears throat> Shirley has been struggling with some health issues and has told me she has scheduled her passing for Monday. Um, her granddaughter, with her namesake, Shirley, is going to get baptized during the service, and Shirley's watching from her hospice bed at home. And so we're going to talk about what it is John testifies that we must believe, and then we're going to have someone testify that they believe it. You'll get a chance to do that too, okay? <coughs> One of the things I think uh, is difficult is the whole endeavor of biographies. Um, I like reading biographies. As a pastor, I often encourage Christians to read Christian biography, especially biographies of missionaries and, and great uh, people throughout the centuries. But one of the difficult questions is, is like, who should be writing biographies of whom? Right? Like, if some, if, if some publishing company came to you and was like, you live a very notable life, and we want people to hear about it, and people may not know about it, we want somebody to write a biography of your life. Who is the proper biographer for you? Who could really make your life known in its fullness? Not just a little bit, but like, 
all of it. If somebody read whatever that person put together, they would really, really get you in everything your life, character, and person had to offer. Right? You might call it the biographer's struggle. Like, of all the things a, a biographer, somebody who's revealing another person would have to have to do it, right? You'd have to be a truly unique source if, you, like, you're the person to be picked, right? You'd have to be able to, like, demonstrate that person's relatability. Like, you'd have to make them feel like they were really there. You'd, you'd have to show their true greatness. You'd have to know what was glorious about them, what was really great about their life. And you'd have to be able to relate that really well. You'd have to have deep and intimate knowledge of the person. You couldn't just generally know them. Like, if you're going to write a biography in this kind of way, you couldn't just, like, study all the things that they wrote. And, like, a lot of biographies, especially of, like, very great people, the people who write biographies of them spend most of their time going through documents, news stories written about them, something they wrote in their journal over here. It's not because they really, 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 really deeply personally knew them, right? And then that person have to be, a, like, a sufficient and a really helpful communicator. They'd have to be able to put together something that when they got done, you would really feel like you understood it. Not just one little moment or a couple of pages, but they'd have to be able to relate the whole thing. I think there's a biographer in England right now that's on the second of his third of three volumes on Winston Churchill, and they're all 500 pages plus. One of the reasons this is important is what John is saying to us in the whole Gospel of John, but particularly here in his introduction, is, is he's saying, there is no one who can do this for the unseen God, except the Word made flesh. There is no one who can make the God who no one has seen known, except this one. That's it. There's only one that can fulfill these categories. And in another way, what John is saying about Jesus is he's also kind of linking himself in, in that he knew Jesus this way and is then his biographer for us to read. Because, like, remember, we're the fourth step of this. The Son is the exact representation of the Father when he becomes flesh. John has to know Jesus in these five ways. I mean, think about this. We don't live in, we don't live in community anymore, really. Most of us have our own houses where we live separate from everybody else. One of the strange things about Jesus and his disciples is that they lived communally for his whole ministry. Like, John saw Jesus at every moment. He was there at night. He was there at every meal. He was there for every talk. He was there for every, every frustrating event that happened. All the different things. He saw every single one of them because he was with Jesus the entire time. Which makes a very special relationship, which is very, very unique. Now, um, one of the ways John shows this in his gospel is that here in, starting in verse 14 and following, he changes the title. So for the first 13 verses, it's, um, it's God and the Word. So God has his very, his very logic, his very truthfulness, his very self-expression is this Word, and then the Word becomes flesh, and then John changes the language he's using. He switches from God and Word to Father and Son. But the word that he uses is one and only Son. I'll get to that a little bit more in a minute. And the, the purpose of this is because he wants to, he wants to basically say, this is the person who can really demonstrate who the Father is. Just as the Word is the full message of God, the Son is the full revealer of the Father. The whole point of the, the last verse in this passage is that this one who becomes flesh is actually capable of making the Father known. 
right? And that person we find out in chapter 1 is Jesus the Christ, right? So you might say it like this. Jesus is the one and only Son, that he is the Father's glory made known by dwelling in the flesh. I know for some of you it's kind of like, well, yeah. Okay, I I mean, you know, I've been a Christian for like, I don't know, 27 years? Like, it's—I don't know what—it's hard to go back and, like, hear this for the first time, you know? Um, So let me try to break it down and rewater it for you. Um, So I'm going to break this down to five parts, so we're not going to spend a lot of time on each part, but let's just do what we can. The the first is that Jesus is the one and only Son. That is, is he's the singularly unique representation of God the Father, okay? Um— there's a particular word that the Apostle John uses that really he uses unlike anybody else. Um, in Greek, it's monogenes. Mono meaning one, genes meaning generative of life or child, right? So monogenes means one and only child or, or son, right? Um, <clears throat> now, in Luke's gospel, he uses the word three times. And in each time, he's just saying that this person is the only child of the person who is the parent. Right? So there's this, a widow in Nain who there's a funeral procession, and it says the son who's in the coffin is her monogenes, her one and only son, right? There's this other place where um, a father comes and begs Jesus to heal his daughter who's dying, and it says that she is the monogenes, the only daughter, the only child of this father, right? And there's three of those examples in Luke's gospel. In Hebrews, it's in 11, it says that Abraham was willing to sacrifice his son Isaac, his monogenes, his one and only son, Right? That's not the way John uses it. In, in Luke's gospel and in kind of in Hebrews, the idea is the only one. They would have liked to have more, but they don't have any more. This is their only one, their only child. That's not how John uses the word. John is using the word saying the singularly unique. There's only one of these on purpose. It could not be otherwise, right? If you um, look at how the word is used, in some, it's, the word is only used about seven places in the entire Bible. The Old Testament, you're like, wasn't in the Old Testament? Wasn't that written in Hebrew? Yes, it was. But 200 years before the birth of Christ, it was translated into Greek in a document called the Septuagint. If you see LXX in a Bible book or something, that refers to the Septuagint. And the Septuagint, right, L for 50, XX for 10, so 70, the Septuagint, get it? Okay. So in the Septuagint, this word shows up a few times. In the Psalms, in these contexts, Right? So the psalmist writes, deliver my soul from the sword, my only life, my monogenes, my one life. Right? Because genes or child means life too. So God, deliver. This is my only life. These people are trying to kill me. Right? If you don't help me, like, I'm going to die. And I don't, I'm not immortal. <laughs> I'm, I'm frail. I'm going to lose my one life, my monogenes. Right? Or turn, me, turn to me and be gracious to me, for I am lonely and afflicted. Lonely, that is, I am one life alone. By myself. Does that make sense? Or, Lord, how long will you—how long will thou look on? Rescue my soul from the ravages, my only life from the lion. Similar context to the first verse. Do you see the point? So it, it, what, it, what it means in some contexts is like, my one and only life. This is, this is a singularly unique thing. There is no other. There could be no other, right? And that's how John uses it. John uses this word twice in chapter 1. He's going to use it twice in chapter 3, right? In the famous verse. We'll get to it. And then he uses it in First John, a letter that comes at the very end of the Bible. The point of 
this verse or this word in his use of it is to say, this word who becomes flesh is in that sense God's son. He is the enfleshing of the person of God. In that sense, just like a person has a son or a daughter, that person is physically present. They're, they're in the world. And yet this one is not just the son of God in that sense. He is the son of God in the further sense of in the ancient world, it was assumed that children would be just like their parents. Now, that's not really assumed now. In fact, it's fairly popular for young people to, like, figure out their identity by be becoming as unlike their parents as possible. In fact, the more privileged people are, the more that tends to be the case. You see, if you don't have a lot of privileges, whatever your parents have carved out in the world, it is of extreme advantage for you to hide yourself within that thing they worked so hard to carve out. If your fathers and grandfathers and great-grandfathers built like a big blacksmithing business and they spent their, poured their lives into it, the idea that you're going to run off and be a plumber or a teacher is just crazy. Right? Like, what you do is you come into the thing that your parents worked so hard to create, and within that bulkhead in the difficulty of the world, you take advantage of it. So if your dad was a blacksmith, you become a blacksmith. If your dad was a horse breeder, you became a horse breeder because you knew everything he knew. He would teach you everything from when you were a little kid. And so you had all those advantages. And in an unprivileged society, you take whatever privilege you have. Right? The idea that we can be unlike our parents and despise our parents and tell our parents that they stink even though they fed us and bathed us and did everything. Hey, it's Mother's Day, right? <laughs> that is the ironic and treasonous blasphemy of children of a privileged age. That's what that is. And so when the Bible says Jesus is the Son of the Father— what he means is, he's exactly like him. He grows up to be just like him. So if you want to know what the father is like, everybody would have assumed the best way to figure out what a father— if a father had died, and you want to know what that person was like, and you didn't get a chance to meet him, the most fundamental way you could possibly is to go meet his son. Because that is the exact representation, or as much as it, there could be in a culture in which children respected and wanted to be like their parents— as the father. Does that make sense? He is the unique son. And in this passage, the Apostle John uses the word grace, which means like a freely given gift of generosity. Four times. He doesn't use it again in the rest of the Gospel of John. In the rest of the Gospel of John, the word grace becomes the word Jesus, the person of Jesus. But he starts out here saying, this unique son that there could never be anything like that God ought, could have withheld. It says, through his grace, we have received this. Right. This one and only son, this utterly unique one. Now, the, the point then is, okay, this son is a son partly because he became flesh and dwelt among us. Right? That's what it says in verse 14. The word became flesh— and made his dwelling among us. Now, one of the reasons that this is critical is that it is, it is in his becoming flesh and making his dwelling with us that he becomes seeable. He becomes seeable. He, he doesn't just become flesh, because in theory he could have become flesh and not been among any idiotic humans. Right? I know, I know some people who just want to— just, they're, they're a person— they're in a physical body. They don't want to be around anybody. 
Jesus not only became a person, having a mind that he could have thought every human person was an idiot and didn't want to be around them, and then he lived a utterly transparent, completely public life until those people murdered him. He became flesh, and he dwelt among us. A lot of people say this catches some Old Testament imagery, because in, in the, when the people of Israel were going through the desert, they had the, the tabernacle in the middle of the people. And he, in, the, in the tabernacle, that tent where God's Spirit dwelled, was right in the middle of all the people of God. There's 12 tribes, three on this side, three on this side, three on this side, three on that side. Three times four is 12. And so the, the tabernacle of God is right in the middle of the people, right? That word tabernacle means dwelling. It was the dwelling of God. The tabernacle was the way God dwelled among his people. And Jesus is grace in place of grace. Jesus is the true and greater dwelling of God among his people. The way God could be seen in his glory more easily perceived, more rightly perceived. <clears throat> There's at least three, three things John is going to get at over the course of his gospel when he says that he became flesh. Because he could have just said human. Right? There is a word in the original language for human. Anthropos, it just means hu humankind, right? It's, it's actually in John 1. John uses it when he says his light was the light of man in the older translations, but we just say mankind now or humanity. That word anthropos just means human beings. He could have said that. He could have said the word became an anthropos, a human being, but he didn't. He said sarxes, right? The flesh. He became flesh. Now why does he say that? Because he's intentionally being unflattering towards human embodiment while honoring it. Like being a human being in a body is not particularly glamorous. Okay? <clears throat> we have whole industries trying to make it glamorous, but it's not particularly glamorous. We don't last that long. We start running downhill pretty soon after we get to the top of the hill. We've got hair growing out of all kinds of places, and we do things <clears throat> that are not particularly cool. We are rational animals, but we are animals in a very real sense, and it's not particularly glamorous. And he became flesh. That is, God the Son became flesh, demonstrating that these creatures that we are are in the image of God. Unglamorous, but nothing to be ashamed of. Right? Under the curse, broken, but a grace, a beauty, something incredibly valuable to the Father, something that God himself was not afraid to take on. And not only is it, therefore, Genesis 1 that tells us human beings, both male and female, are made in God's image, that makes us believe that every human being is valuable and should be treated with a certain accord of dignity and justice. It's also this, that the Son of God did not think it beneath him to take on human flesh. That honors and gives dignity to the human person. Every human person. Right? <clears throat> now, secondly, it also means that he's he took on flesh in the world, among flesh, right? That is, he subjected himself to the world. That is, that which he created that didn't recognize him, that was in treason against him, he came in among them. He didn't come to his fans. Do you understand? He didn't come to people who were like, oh, yes, come on. He came to people who denied him, didn't understand him, willfully misunderstood him, took offense at him, wouldn't listen to him, wanted everything that he could give them that they could just consume, and nothing that he wanted to give them that would transform them. 
He became flesh and dwelt among us. Right? The verses right before that talk about the world. That's who us is. Right? And then lastly is this. It says in Hebrews 1 that Jesus is the exact representation of God. And that after he provided atonement for sin, he ascended to heaven and is seated at the right hand of God the Father. That is, sacrifices are flesh and blood. If you go back to the Old Testament, every lamb, every bull, every goat, every pigeon, every everything, you couldn't go to the temple and sacrifice a spiritual lamb. It had to be a flesh and blood lamb. It had to fit, exist in corporeal reality. It had to be a thing that was. It had to be in flesh with blood. And so for Jesus to be the atoning sacrifice, to be what he will be called in this chapter, John 1, just a few moments later, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. The lamb has to be a real lamb, a physical one in flesh so that it has blood, so that it can die, so that it can provide atonement. Jesus, the Word, took on flesh and dwelt among us. The third thing is that the Son reveals the glory. Um, It says right after he made his— he, this, the Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. And then it says, We have seen His glory, the glory of the one and only who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. Right? One and only, that's that word, not against, one and only Son. Right? By the time you get to John 2, for the miracle of Canaan Galilee, Jesus' first miracle where He turns water into wine, it says, And so, with this sign, He revealed His glory, and His disciples believed in Him. The eight signs that John will place all the way through the gospel, though he says there's many, many more miracles that Jesus does. He just talks about these eight. He says these are signs of the glory of God so that people could believe, right? Now, on one level, it's just that. But on another level, it's more than just giving people the opportunity to believe. It's giving people the desire to believe, right? Um, most commentators say that this is uh, connected with Exodus 32 to 34. If you haven't read Exodus 32 to 34, I would encourage you to. The context is, is that the people have come out of Egypt. The people of Israel have come out of Egypt. They're in the desert. Moses goes up to get the Ten Commandments. He gets the Ten Commandments. He comes down, and the people are having a strangely violent orgy, worshiping a golden calf, which is kind of not what they were supposed to be doing. Right? And that creates a conflict where God's like, look, this is what these people are like. This is what I'm telling them to do. This is not going to work. Don't you see that, Moses? And he's like, look, I'm just going to wipe them out. And I will build a new people from you. And it, I'll still keep my promise because my promise is, is that I, through the children of Abraham, I would build a nation. Moses is a child of Abraham. I can get rid of all the rest of these Jewish people, right? And I can just take Moses. And from Moses, I can make a new people of God. He still would be fulfilling his word. He's not breaking his promises, right? And so he's like, that's what I'm going to do. And Moses is like, well, wait. But that's not what people will think you are doing. <clears throat> what the Egyptians will think is that you brought your people out of Egypt just to kill them. And all the work you just did to try to teach them what you're really like is all going to go to waste. And he doesn't say this, but his kids aren't going to be any better than these ones, Right? And he knows that. And, and 
how much God is playing with him here, there's, there's all kinds of historical debate, but, but Moses basically says, listen, we need to, we need to stay on play, and God's like, okay. And then Moses says to him, he says, have I found favor in your eyes? Are you going to be with me? Are we going to work together? And God's like, yes. And so he says, okay, show me your glory. So this is, this is Moses' request. So he's going to go back down there and work with those people who aren't going to get wiped out. And, and he and God are going to work together, and Moses is going to be God's voice piece to these people. And he's going to lead them through the desert and into a promised land. And all that's going to happen. He's like, listen, I need one thing. I need to see your glory. I need to know what I'm serving, who I'm serving. And I need to have that in and with me for all the stuff I'm going to face. Right? Notice what John says. No one has seen God. No one has seen God. But everybody feels like Moses. You want me to live a life of faith, of real belief? of the kind of courage to do the good in the right when I'm going to live in flesh among the world and people are going to treat me like you because you even said, Jesus, that if they called me the devil, what do you think they're going to call you? And so everybody, believer or non-believer, the non-believer in order to believe wants to see God. The believer who wants to, who like knows what's in front of them, what they're going to have to do, what they're going to have to face, feels the same way. They want to see God. Show me your glory. That was said by a believer, not an unbeliever, Right? And God says to him, no. I'll, I'm paraphrasing now. I'm going to let you see part of my glory because the reason you can't see God is because nobody can really see all of me and live. You have no idea what you're really asking to see God. We think we know. We talk about it. We're imagining like a glowing man or something, but we have no idea what it would actually mean to see God in all of his glory. He says, here's what I'll, here's what I'll do. I'm going to put you in this like little hiding place in a rock, and I'm going to cover it over when I pass by, and I'm going to let you kind of see the back after part of my glow, and it, what you're going to see is my goodness, which is part of my glory. And that's what you're going to see. And so God does this. He puts Moses in this place. He walks by, and as he walks by, he, he says his name, and he says certain things about his attributes, right? And so he says, The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebelliousness, and sin. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children's children for the sins of the fathers to the third and fourth generation. I do not have time to exposit the children's children thing, okay? But here's what, here's what he's saying. As the glow of his goodness passes by, he intones certain words to describe it somewhat for Moses. So he's seeing this glow, and God is interpreting it for him what he means. He's like, listen, you have no idea how generous and kind and compassionate and generous and loving I am. You have no idea. You have no idea. If you could just see that bit— it would make your face glow. It would, it would do something to you that would be enough to carry you away, and you would feel like you had seen God. Though you hadn't seen all of Him, you'd just seen a part of Him. Here's the thing you need to understand, friends. You're not going to see God right now. The best you're going to do right now is you're going to see part of Him. But here's the good news. You only need like a mustard seed's worth of the glory of God to carry you through the rest of your life. You know what I mean? You don't have to see God 
in all of his glory to be filled with enough capacity to act faithfully, to have faith, right? And so Moses, though he only sees the goodness of God passing by, sees more than enough to carry him, right? But notice he says, he says God is compassionate and loving and kind, and he forgives wickedness, rebelliousness, and sin. He's a forgiving God, which is a beautiful thing, especially given that he's going to have to go back down the mountain to these people who had just done everything they could possibly do to offend God. Idolatry, promiscuity, and violence. <laughs> Woo! That's the trifecta right there. That's like the Ezekiel trifecta, right? So like, he's going to have to forgive these people, so it's really good he's forgiving. But then he says, but he doesn't live the guilty unpunished. Why, why that section? And the answer is, he's not just a God of grace. He is also a God of justice, which is the practical embodiment of truth. I mean, what is justice? When we do the hard action of justice, it's to say, this is not just about generous feeling. This is also about that there are certain things that are real, that exist, that are true, and other things that are false, and they have moral categorizations, and they matter, and they have to be paid attention to, and things have to be done about them, and that is truth dictates certain rightness, i.e. righteousness, which dictates justice. Those things coexist. They live together. They're not to be diminished. God is all of it at one time. That is, what does it mean to see the glory of the goodness of God? It is to see grace and truth in their fullness, perfectly united. You see, that's what John is saying Jesus is and was. He is the truth and grace of God, perfectly united, no subtraction from either, all of the generosity that there is, and all of the truthfulness towards justice that there is, unified in one person, in every word, in every act, in every sign, in every miracle, in every teaching, and then ultimately, supremely in the cross, where grace and truth meet perfectly in atonement, Grace and truth are—see, the law is the first grace. And that grace is a deep grace because it demonstrates the generosity and the severity of God. The grace and truth of God are both in the law. The law says, do this and don't do that. This is wickedness. This is defilement. This is right and this is wrong. This is what you should do. This is how you should treat your neighbor. Truth, truth, truth. And when you screw up and you are going to screw up, I am forgiving. And here's an entire worship system and sacrificial system by which you can come back to me. You can find my grace. You can, you can turn from your sins. You can be redeemed. You can experience my compassion and my love for you. And these two swirl around together in the activity of the law. But there is a grace greater than that grace which is these things shown in the one and only Son who made his dwelling among us full of grace and truth, revealing his glory, a more than sufficient glory for us who have not seen God. Right? All right, I'm just going a little faster. The Son is truly known and knows and is known. So one of the next questions that could come from the skeptical human heart is this. Yes, but to, to what extent does the Son know the Father, right? Now, in one sense, if he's the Word of God, if he is the Word, you're like, well, he's literally the message of God exactly. The, the message God would give, he is, right? So, John has already literally picked the, used, used, picked the title Word to convey that. 
But there's another way he says this. In, in 18, as he's, as he's concluding this section, he says, no one has ever seen God, but, the, but God, the one and only Son, who is within the bosom of the Father, has made him known. Right? So he says, listen, even Moses didn't see God. Not fully. Even when it says God spoke to Moses face to face like a man speaks with his friends, we know that in some sense that's a communicative metaphor because there's other places where God explicitly says he doesn't show him fully his self-revelation, his full face. Does that make sense? So Moses had as intimate a relationship with God as you could, you could imagine, but it's not the thing of all of his glory, right? And so in that sense, even Moses, even including Moses, no one has seen God. And we, for the most part, certainly haven't. I mean, if, if we're honest, if any of us are honest about our main religious disappointment— Everybody's honest main religious disappointment is that they have not seen God. Almost anybody, when you come right down to it, even relative to suffering, even if your suffering is very intense, you'd be like, no, my main issue is, is my suffering. Why have I suffered? And, and, and I've asked somebody this question. If you are dying of a very painful cancer, and you're in a hospital bed, and you're alone in a room, suffering profoundly, and if Jesus the Christ himself entered that room and sat down by your bed and said, listen, I am not going to, nor will I, explain this all to you. But here's what I can tell you. I exist. I am here. I have always loved you. I have loving purposes in all I'm bringing about through this curse. And you will live again, and you will be free of all pain, and you will be with me. Can you endure? Right? I don't know anybody who I think is at all a sincere believer who would say no. Right? Like, the, one of the reasons why suffering is so difficult for us is because of the hiddenness of God. And John says, no one has seen God. You have not seen God. Right? And here's the thing. But there is one so close to the Father who is making him known. And the image that he uses here is in the bosom of the Father. We don't use that word very much, and don't Google it for images. <laughs> that it's, you know how there's different kinds of hugs, even romantic or non-romantic? I remember when I was a camp counselor, there was this statement in the thing, sometimes side hugs are more appropriate, right? And sometimes that was referred to as the Christian hug, the Christian side hug, right? It's non-sexual. It's nice, right? It's barely a hug, okay? I, I even like that hug, you know? Um, and then there's like the face-to-face -face hug. There's some romantic embraces. But there's a kind of hug that's like when you pull somebody's head into your chest and you're saying, I'm putting your head close to my heart. If you're a woman, it's close to my heart and my most nurturing and whatever parts, right? <clears throat> I mean, children crave the softness of that place, the embrace of that place, right? It's, it's a different hug. Do you understand? with your children, somebody you care about. Like, I've hugged my wife under her shoulders, face to face, and I've hugged her and held her head to my chest. And I'm communicating something very different when I do those two things. The image here is, is that Jesus' head lay in the bosom of the Father. That is, his head is held into his very heart in the most intimate place. That he's embraced by the Father, and not just all of his truth— but all of his tenderness, all of his care, what his heart really is, that, that is Jesus in the bosom, coming from the bosom of the Father, conveys not just the truth of God, but the heart of God. 
He knows God not just as a diplomat might know his boss, but as a son would know his father if he had a truly intimate understanding of what he cared about, what he loved, what he was passionate about, what he felt. Which is his willingness to take the son who he embraces that closely in accordance with the son's own will too and give him for you. One of the interesting things about the Gospel of John is the people who attack John's authorship, they, they say, well, John doesn't say he's in the Gospel and whatever. We don't even know if John wrote the Gospel of John. This is a really interesting irony. Because John calls himself the beloved disciple just a couple of times. Two in the last half of the Gospel. One in chapter 13 and one in chapter 20. <clears throat> now think about this for a second. Jesus is the one who comes from the bosom of the Father to us to really make him known, to really reveal him so that we can believe, Right? At the Last Supper, it says, the Jesus who, the disciple who Jesus loved, who laid at his bosom, said, right? And then, in chapter 20, Jesus talks to the disciple who he loves, and there is this moment of, what will you believe? In particular, in relationship to Peter, what he has said, Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. You see what he's saying? Without revealing his name, he's saying, Jesus laid at the bosom of the Father, so to speak. The Son is at the very heart of the Father, and he comes and dwelling into the world, showing us the Father and who he is, right? As fully as possible. And then Jesus embraced me as his disciple and apostle to his own bosom, not just literally at the table of this moment of fellowship around the, the death and resurrection or surrounding the Passover, leading to his death and resurrection, but in that moment, it was a symbol of how he embraced me as a person, so that I would know him like he knows his own father, that I would be embraced to the bosom of knowing his heart so that I can write it here for you, so that these pages would show you how the father feels. Because one who is in his bosom to one who is in the son's bosom is writing to you so that you could know and you could believe and you could have in your heart the father's heart for you. That he would make himself known that you would see his glory. That you would be captured by his one and only son and his sacrifice to you. And lastly, the word that he uses to relate, the context in scripture for this is taking a long time to tell a story. This is the last point. Taking a long time to tell a story. Um, for example, in the, the, the people on the road to Emmaus, right? It says that Jesus basically interpreted the entire Old Testament for him. That's about 870 pages. And how the Messiah is in all of it. And they're walking like 14 miles. And Jesus was relating to them. Do you get the point? There's another place where the, the apostles meet some other apostles, and they're like, you won't believe what happened. And they, they're sharing what happened. And they're relating. That it's telling all the stuff that happened. It's kind of like, imagine your teenage daughter— Okay, that's probably not a good thing. Imagine you have a Gabby kid. And they are relating to you. And it is going on and on. And technically it's moving forward, but not moving forward like a sitcom should. You know what I'm saying? And it's just like you're hearing everything. Like there's no editing. It's so much, right? And in some cases that could be really like, I wish you'd move on with it, right? But in this case, the context is, is that the one who is at the bosom of the Father, full of grace and truth, who is the depiction of grace upon grace, who is the only unique son of the Father, who made his dwelling among us, among us, who took on flesh, is relating 
the Father to us in detail, in completeness, through sign after sign, in complete sufficiency for us. So that we would realize not only do we know who the Father is, and do we know who the Son is, and do we know how to be saved, and do we know how to know God, and do we know how to have life in his name, but that actually what we've been given is incredibly abundant. It's so much. I said a few weeks ago that John's thesis is at the end of his gospel where he says, um, I wrote these things so that you can believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and by believing you can have life in his name. And I said that first week that what we believe, what you believe, is the most important thing about you that you can control. I don't have a lot of real specific applications for you. But what I know is this. Most people know what they should do. Most people, some people have a complicated enough situation where they need some advice. Fine. But most people, the great trials of their life are not that they don't know what they should do. The great trial of their life is finding the will to do it. Finding the motivation. Finding the passion. Finding the courage. And that comes from whether or not they really can see the glory. Just, just enough of the backside of the afterglow. And what John is saying is if you will look to him, his provision is abundant. It's so much. In the person of Christ, in the providence of how the Father worked these things, and in the presence of the Spirit, you can believe. You can exert faith. You can turn to him. You can Find the courage in him to do what you're meant to do, because even if you lose, you win. Let's stop there. Lord God, we, we thank you that, um, that this testimony stands here. We thank you that um, John wrote it. We thank you that, Jesus, that you held him to your bosom as a disciple, that you let him see everything about you as you were, so that he could relay it to us as one who was at the Father's bosom himself. We pray that through reading this and believing it, and then operating in the context of your Spirit working in us right now, that we would experience some reality of your glory, even as people who have never seen you. We believe that we will see you, and we'll have inexpressible joy in that moment. But in this mediating period, where we have seen you in, as the Christ, and where we have you with us in the Spirit, We are meant to be your incarnate ones who haven't yet seen you. Help us to so see Christ and his glory that we're carried forward and encouraged through all things in faith. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.